Well, if you've been here at Servants the last few weeks, you know that we're beginning to work through the Sermon on the Mount. It starts off with the Beatitudes, we call them. All those blessed are these and this and the other thing. And then there's a session where we're told what believers are like. Like the salt of the earth. Doesn't that sound nice? And like the light of the world. Wow. And then we get hit with these very hard blessings indeed. We may have to dig a bit to find the blessing here. Jesus begins with blessings. He describes the life of believers as salt and light. And then he sneaks in a bunch of stuff about broken relationships. All of a sudden, Jesus tosses tosses us into memories of damaged family relationships, broken friendships, broken business dealings, broken marriages, and broken trust within the community. And these are all painful areas of life, intensely painful areas of life. I imagine most of us can identify with most of these situations. I can remember being angry with my brother and unfairly angry. My brother John and I are 10 years apart. 10 and 0 was pretty cool. 10 and 1 was pretty cool. 11 and 1 was pretty cool. 12 and 2 was actually pretty fun. 12 and 3, that was pretty fun. 14 and 4, started going downhill. 15 and 5, 16 and 6, 17 and 7. I'm surprised my brother still talks to me. And I've been angry at lots of people. I've called lots of people fools, idiots. I refer to lots of administrators as useless. That's literally what Jesus says when he says insulting. He says call them empty, rock in Aramaic. Useless, worthless. You're empty. Useless, worthless. Most of you here know because I've been around for a long time. My first marriage ended in divorce. Some of you were here 26 years ago when I entered this community. Coming out of that failure of marriage. And I've been told that I couldn't be believed anymore because I'd been caught in, caught in so many lies. Now pretty much we're back to 14, 15, 16, 17 again. I'm trying to make light of all this, but um, this is all heavy stuff. All of us have gone through times when our families have been torn apart by one thing or another. We've been angry at people, even unfairly. I doubt any of us aren't touched by the pain of divorce, either personally or through our families or close friends. And all of us have been told that we're not believed. These are all painful things. Why is Jesus dragging all this stuff up? Well, Jesus is explaining to us who we really are, and he's explaining to us who he really is. And to see the purpose of Jesus dragging all this stuff up, we need to back up a bit. We need to look at the location of this passage that we've yanked out of the Bible in context. 
If you have your pew Bibles with you, I'd like you to go to Matthew chapter 5. I'll be reading verses 17 and 18. This is the section right before these hard blessings. Jesus says to his disciples, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus says the law, Moses' law isn't going to go away. But I'm going to show you what the purpose of these laws is. And I'm going to show you how they're going to be fulfilled. And then Jesus leaves us with a warning which at first sounds kind of scary and then sounds less scary because he's going to leave us with an even scarier warning. In verse 20, right before the reading this morning, for I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, and he's not joking, that unless their righteousness exceeds those who are prideful of their righteousness, those who boast of their righteousness, those who everybody looks at as they walk down the street and says, that person is really righteous. Unless your righteousness exceeds them, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, Jesus is getting ready to show us two things. First, that our mental actions are as important as our physical actions. And second, that God's law is more strict than even the law of Moses. In conversation, we might refer to Moses' law as God's law, but in fact, God's law is a lot stricter than Moses' law. Jesus is going to show us two things. First, that mental action is as important as physical action, and that God's law is much more strict than any of us can imagine. And so Jesus starts out on the light theme of murder. The sixth commandment in verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, he quotes from what we call the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus says what causes murder is in fact as bad as murder. Even denigrating, insulting, disregarding, or writing off someone deserves hellfire. But the seed is as big as the plant. The little mental seed that under ordinary circumstances or unordinary circumstances could lead to murder, the seed of an idea is as bad as the larger plan. That the mental act is the same as a physical act. And the answer to anger, Jesus says, is reconciliation. He says in verse 23, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. There's a joke in there we don't get. 
Jesus is using hyperbole here to make a point. As 21st century Americans, we're kind of puzzled by what's the joke here. Okay, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, most of whom are Galileans. And, the, and Matthew tells us that this is in Galilee. The temple where the altar is, is in Jerusalem. That's a three-day fast walk. That's a three-day quick walk. Most of the time, that's a week-long walk there and walk back. A week-long walk there and a week-long walk back. If you kind of take your time and don't push yourself and just enjoy the trip, it's a week there and a week back. Okay. So you have to picture what Jesus is telling his disciples, his Galilean disciples to do. He says, you're going to walk for a week to Jerusalem. And then you're going to buy a sacrificial animal, probably at the temple from those money changer guys, because then you know it's going to be guaranteed to be accepted. And you're going to take your goat, and you're going to take your goat all the way up to the altar, and you're going to stand in line for however long it takes to get up to the altar. And then right before you get to the altar, you're going to say, Daryl Johnson is mad at me. And you're going to tell your goat, okay, stay here. And then you're going to run for three days back to Galilee and hunt down your brother Daryl and say, Daryl, I, I, I was wrong. Will you forgive me? And Daryl says, I, yes, I will. And I say, oh, thank you. And I run back for three days back to Jerusalem where the goat's still standing, right? And then finally, and, and somebody held my place in line, right? And so I'm going to offer my gifts. So everybody's kind of laughing. But what's important here is that when Jesus uses hyperbole, he's not minimizing. He's pointing to the seriousness of the situation. And he's saying, of course you don't want to be in a situation where you go through all of that and then remember your brother is angry at you. Why don't you remember your brother is angry with you before you go on the trip? That's the point. Why do you let it get to that place? Because you know, if you get down there to Jerusalem and you're standing in line and you remember you're going to have to go back and make it right, why not make it right before you leave on the trip? Jesus' hyperbole doesn't minimize. It draws attention to the seriousness of the act. And I hope you've picked up by now that we do this every Sunday in our liturgy. Before we take the offering, which is more than the money, watch the ushers bring forward the bread and the wine. That's part of the offering as well. And the money as well. Before the offering, what do we do? We go to each other and we wish each other peace. We say, the peace of the Lord be with you. For some reason, this has become a time to go around and talk to your friends. When it was designed to be a time to go around and talk to your enemies. You're supposed to be thinking about, you know, that person I don't like to walk past. You better go over there and say, are we at peace with each other? That person voted against me in vestry. What did you go and you say, are, are, are we past that? Okay. We do that before the offering, and even more important, we do that before communion. We don't want hard feelings. We don't want bitter feelings going on before we take the offering, before we offer the elements of the Eucharist. Well, Jesus moves on to a business conflict. And Jesus advises resolution. Solve your problem before you get to court, because you never know what the judge is going to say. That sounds at first like just business advice. That might make sense under most circumstances to settle out of court because after all you don't know what the judge is going to say. Place that in the context of the entire Sermon on the Mount though. Chapter 7 verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged because the standard you use to judge others will be used to judge you. 
And then keep reading right at the end of the Sermon of the Mount. The ultimate judge comes and brings ultimate judgment. Settle your differences before you show up before the judge. In the larger context, that's more than just a little bit of business advice. Figure out how to reconcile yourselves before the ultimate judge shows up and brings ultimate judgment. That's a bit more serious. Now, having looked at this first section on anger, I want to say this. Our temptation as 21st century American Christians is to come to this section of the, of the Sermon on the Mount and re-legalize everything. Well, okay, Jesus is giving us some new rules. So now we need to follow these new rules. And we lose the point that Jesus is pointing us to the purpose behind the rules. Jesus isn't giving us a new set of legal standards here. When I was a kid, now we're back to 14, 15, 16 again. I was a big fan of the A-team. And I liked everybody on the A-team. But I liked Mr. T. And you remember Mr. Sorry, some of you guys don't remember Mr. T. But Mr. T used to go around saying, I pity the fool, right? And because I liked Mr. T, I would walk around the house and I would say, I pity the fool. And my father said, James, look right here. It says you're not supposed to call people fools. My dad called me lots of things. He never did call me a fool. But I think maybe... I want to go back in time and tell dad, dad, the point isn't the word fool is a dirty word. The point is treat people respectfully as people made in the image of God. It's not that Jesus gives us a new list here. As long as you don't call somebody useless and you don't call somebody a fool, you're okay. No, there's more. That's not the point. The point isn't a new list of rules you can't, words you can't use. The, the point is to point to the purpose Behind the law. Jesus is not teaching us a new legalism. He's not giving us a new list of rules. He's pointing to the truth behind the laws. And Jesus moves on to the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. In verse 27, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That the mental action is the equivalent of the physical action. Lust is not simply noticing that someone is attractive. Lust is what oftentimes happens after the noticing, builds on the noticing, the fantasizing, the imaginary planning. Lust dwells in the imagination. And Jesus says the seed is as big as the plant. The mental action is as big as a physical action. Now what we want to say, what we want to say is we read what Jesus says and we want to say there's something dangerous about lust because lust can turn into a physical action of adultery. That's the danger with lust. It's dangerous because that mental action can turn into something physical. But Jesus says, no, lust is already dangerous. Lust is already as big as the physical action. It's not that lust is dangerous because it might lead to something else. It's that lust is the seed and the seed is as large as the plant. In each of these so far we see treating people as other than people created in the image of God. 
calling people insulting or treating them as physical objects, physical objects for, for, for one's own personal, selfish, private gratification. Again, our temptation is to come and, and to see these as new rules and try to find loopholes. And Jesus isn't giving us laws to find loopholes in. He's pointing us to the truth behind the law. And again, Jesus turns to hyperbole here. He says, if your right eye is causing you to lust, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and throw it away. Is Jesus really considering this as a reasonable action? He's using hyperbole to say, why don't we stop it before we get to that point? Why don't you deal with it before you get to that place? But again, hyperbole does not minimize. Hyperbole points to the seriousness of what Jesus is talking about. And then Jesus quotes not from the law of, uh, not, not, from, not from the Ten Commandments, but from the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24. It was also said, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. It's interesting to look at that law in Deuteronomy 24. Moses says, if you divorce your wife, make sure you give her a certificate of divorce. The rabbis came to mean that that meant something that would last throughout her whole life, written in ink that would disappear during her life. So if there was ever any question, she would say, I'm an honorable woman because my husband gave me a certificate of divorce. I didn't, I, 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 am, I am not committing adultery by marrying again because here is my certificate of divorce. And the law goes on to say, if she marries again and that husband either divorces her or dies, then she cannot marry the first husband again because that would be a defilement. The defilement there is the desire to enter into a marriage with the first partner because marriage in the Bible is a picture of God's covenant with his people. And that desire to leave the, the, the first covenant, to go off into a covenant with, with idols and then return, that's a picture of that, of that image. We don't have time to unravel all of that, but I'm putting that into a box for you. That's what that law is getting at there. But there's no hint that there's any defilement in the second marriage. No hint that there's any reason why she couldn't marry for a third time. Um, it just isn't there in the law. And if Moses allowed for a divorce with really only one restriction. Why is Jesus so adamant about what he says here? Why is Jesus so much stricter than what, when you actually read the law, is pretty lenient? Well, for that, we go further into Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, because the topic comes up again. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him. What's the test here? We had to read verses 1 and 2 to see. Jesus has crossed into Judea. That's where Herod is king. That's why Herod, that's where Herod is king. That's what where, sorry, that's where Herod is king. That's where Herod has just executed John the Baptist for raising the issue of divorce. And now the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and say, hey Jesus, what do you think about divorce? You see what the trap is? Herod's going to find out somebody else is preaching about divorce and now, well, that's, that's the test. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And the general opinion among the Pharisees of the time was, was that the answer was yes. 
Rabbi Hillel, the most famous rabbi of a generation just before Jesus' generation. You know, there's a Hillel house on UF campus, or you may have heard, heard of it, named for that very famous rabbi. A rabbi whose, whose, whose teachings Jesus parallels almost always, except for some very interesting times, and here's one very interesting time. Hillel said that a husband could divorce a wife for any reason, whatever. He gave the example of burning dinner. Now, maybe Rabbi Hillel is using a bit of hyperbole there too. But then hyperbole doesn't minimize, it points to the seriousness he's saying, even burning dinner. Did he really mean that? Well, he meant something close, okay? And Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, God said at creation, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They, the Pharisees, said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus says, because you have hard hearts, Moses provided a way to have a safe breaking of the marriage bond, but that is not the way God designed it. From the beginning, it wasn't this way. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 5. In verse 32, Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is a verse that I've heard some frankly weird explanations of. And most because this is about a man divorcing his wife. I want to point out to you that Jesus is talking to his disciples. His 12 disciples are men. Under a different context in Mark chapter 9, sorry, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 9, is essentially a copy of what I just read to you from Matthew chapter 19. But Mark adds this detail. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, the matter of divorce. And Jesus said to them, Whoever divorces his wife, and marries another, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Back to Matthew chapter 5, this is not about all the weird, strange things I don't even want to say about what some have interpreted Jesus to be saying in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says that divorce causes adultery. I read that to say that Jesus is here using a bit of hyperbole to saying that but after all how can you make someone commit adultery but that by divorcing the woman or by the woman divorcing the man they're forced to break their marriage vows that seems to make sense to me but if you think I'm minimizing what Jesus is saying here and you have a different conclusion I wouldn't argue with you a bit because the big point here is that marriage is sacred and big. 
And a lot of Christians, trust me, I've been there, come to these passages and the passage in 1 Corinthians trying to re-legalize what Jesus says, trying to find loopholes that will fit their situation. Trust me. But Jesus points us past our own concerns to God's concern. And God's concern here, Jesus' concern here is not to design a bunch of loopholes. Jesus' concern is to point us to the sanctity, the sacredness of marriage, and the very painful seriousness of divorce. I'm sure you've heard. I'm sure you've heard, probably in person. You're sitting around with a group of people, and there's a boyfriend and girlfriend who started living together. And somebody says, well, when are you two going to get married? And one of them says, well, you know, marriage is just a piece of paper. That's usually said in a masculine voice. And if you've been around for a while, you know to at least catch out of the corner of the eye, the feminine face that kind of cringes a bit. That's my experience. Your mileage may differ, as the cool kids say. It's just a piece of paper. It's just a piece of paper. I'm kind of a jerk, so I always say, if it's a piece of paper, why not get one? If it's just a piece of paper. Oh, you know, we don't want to be... Oh, so it's not just a piece of paper, is it? Nobody ever says a certificate of divorce is just a piece of paper. Nobody ever says, have you heard about so-and-so? It's the end of the road. They're getting a divorce. Nobody says, ah, it's just a piece of paper. Everybody goes, oh. Because it's not a piece of paper. It's something serious. And when it comes to an end, it's something painful. It was not the way it was designed from the first. Have you, have you noticed something else? That, 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 that there's, there's a line that the secular world not only doesn't understand, but it, it infuriates them about Christianity. There's one sentence which, which the, the, the secular world has no comprehension of and, in fact, responds with anger. And it's, almost, it's so trite, it's almost like a bumper sticker. God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Drop that into a conversation sometime and see what happens. Usually anger I've seen people come apart at this. You know, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. And most of that anger is when it touches on issues of identity and sexuality. And what more touches identities of identity, questions of identity and sexuality than marriage? But I can read the prophet Malachi, Malachi chapter 5, when God says, I hate divorce. And I get it. I get that sting. That divorce is permitted for the heart of heart. But it's never justified or acceptable or okay. Permitted but not okay. Because Jesus says it was never part of God's plan. So I can feel the sting of God saying I hate divorce. But I also feel the grace of loving the sinner. And until you find that grace, I get the angry response. I get it. Well, there's much more to say about the topic. 
much more to say about the topic. Some of you thought, what about the innocent party? I've myself found that that question is most often self-serving on my part. The farther I go on, the more self-serving it seems to me. And that's all I'm saying. I can't answer all questions and all situations in eight minutes here. But I will say I'm available to discuss the topic. I'll go ahead and be it volunteer to be the point person for divorce questions here at Servants. I'll take on that role because I can't deal with everything that comes up in these minutes. These few minutes. Well, Jesus moves on to vow-taking and oath-making and swearing to tell the truth. I was asked lately, uh, recently, um, what's the difference between swearing to tell the truth and swearing at somebody, like cursing somebody? I thought that's a very interesting question. Really, there isn't a difference. There really isn't. When you curse at somebody, well, you're calling down a curse on that person. If you swear to tell the truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God, you're swearing a curse on yourself if you don't tell the truth. There's really not much of a difference that I can see. Call down a curse on one person or call down a curse on yourself if you aren't telling the truth. Is that taking God's name in vain? Not if you tell the truth. Well, that's kind of serious too. But here again, um, remember when, when we were kids and like we'd say something and then we'd say, oh, I had my fingers crossed. You know? And then, the, then this is like fourth grade, right? And then, then like, you know, you have to show me your fingers and you do like this. And you say, well, I crossed my legs. You know, that kind of stuff. The Pharisees did, were doing this all the time. I don't have time to, to go into the, the details, but I want you to see what Jesus is up against here. If you go to Matthew chapter 23, verse 16, we'll start in verse 16. This is the Pharisees' attitude towards taking vows and oaths and swearing by something. Verse 16 of uh, chapter 23, and I'll read it to you. Woe to you, he's talking to the Pharisees. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by his oath. You blind fools. Fool. Well, he's Jesus. <laughs> For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that's on the altar, he's bound by his oath. We're not going to unravel this. Jesus goes on to knock down the logic behind that loophole in hair splitting and crossing over the fingers business. But if, if, you're, if you're talking to a Pharisee and the Pharisee says, I'll, I'll, I'll pay you that $50 I'll owe you tomorrow, I swear by the altar. And you say, that's good enough. You walk away and you say, wait a second, did he? He swore by the altar, but he didn't swear by the offering on the altar. <clears throat> The Pharisee says, I promise I'm going to close on that house next Tuesday. I prom- I'm not going to leave you in the lurch. I promise. I, I swear by the temple. He walks off and says, hey, I didn't swear by the gold of the temple. Jesus says, be a yes or no kind of person. Be the kind of person, live the kind of life that when you say yes, everybody knows you mean yes. 
When you say no, everybody knows you mean no. You're not going to tell those little white lies that are technically true. You leave for work 10 minutes late. You get to work 10 minutes late. And you tell your boss, I was stopped in traffic. Well, there was a stop sign. Technically, it's true. Are those comments you make in a group where you know half the group is going to take what you say one way and the other half is going to take it the other way and then you're going to be out of the, out of the fight? Jesus says, be a yes or no kind of person. When you add on to that yes or no, you're revealing that there are parts of your life which are not honest. Well, Jesus starts this section by saying you must be more righteous than the Pharisees. You've got to be better than the Pharisees. And then he goes on to show that actually that's pretty easy. It's not all that hard to be better than the Pharisees. But then Jesus will close off this entire section with a warning which is even scarier. And that's in verse 48 of chapter 5. After speaking some more about the law, he summarizes the section on the law by saying, You therefore, this is Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus is quoting Exodus where God says, You must be holy as I am holy. Well, we started off being kind of scared. We had to be more righteous than the Pharisees. Then we find out, well, that's really not all that hard. But we must be as perfect as God. We must be as holy as God. And how can we be as perfect as God? When the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us. When God looks at our failures and sees Christ's righteousness. And I've gone on a bit long, but I don't have to say much more about the gospel of God's grace, about repentance and forgiveness and justification because that's going to be the theme of the entire rest of the service. Listen closely to the liturgy and you're going to hear the rest of my sermon. Repentance, forgiveness, justification, and God's grace. I just leave you with one picture of Jesus in another passage who meets a woman, a physical woman, who's taken physically in the physical act of adultery. And as she stands there acknowledging her sinfulness, even in shame and humiliation, you know what Jesus says to her. As she acknowledges her shame, her guilt, Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. And that's what I can say to all of you, the words of Jesus, and to myself. Go and sin no more. In Jesus' name, amen.